We meet today once again to consider the important prophetic book of Isaiah. In our last study, we considered the joy of the millennium when we saw the celebration, the crescendo of rejoicing in the king who reigns in righteousness. But before we actually move on to chapter 36, it is important to talk about the historical interlude of Isaiah's prophets. Isaiah's prophecy, as it goes, this whole book, it brings us to a certain section that is called the historic interlude. Actually, when you listen to many expositors of the Bible, sometimes you may be confused as to how they are dividing the book of Isaiah. Others will say that Isaiah is divided into two major parts, and they build all the way the first part from chapter 1 to chapter 39, and then uh, argue that the second part is chapter 40 to chapter 66. And then you listen to some who will argue that the book of Isaiah is actually divided into three major parts. Are they contradicting each other or not? They are not necessarily contradicting each other. The fact of the matter is chapter 1 to chapter 35 constitutes the condemnation which is basically prophetic. But chapter 36 to chapter 39 is what is called a historic interlude. Therefore, other scholars would simply look at chapter 1 to chapter 39 as a whole without giving prominence to the historic interlude. Those who divide the book into three will give this historic interlude its prominence. And that is the pattern I would like to follow in our study. Therefore, I actually need to introduce this historic interlude by regarding it as the second major division of the book of Isaiah. This section is unlike that which precedes it and that which follows it. This section actually leaves the high plateau of prophecy and drops down to the record of history. Why do I regard the high plateau of prophecy? Because when we considered Isaiah chapter 35, we were in the millennium. We were seeing the king ruling. We were seeing even the children of God returning. Remember chapter 35 verse 10. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. And it goes on to say they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and morning shall flee away. So you have that high plateau where people are rejoicing in the presence of the Messiah. The kingdom has come, but it drops from there to the record of history. So this section is actually very important. Standing like a beacon in the middle of Isaiah's prophecies is this historic interlude. It records the fulfillment of the prophetic predictions concerning the overthrow of Assyria and also of the rise of Babylon. Even the form of the language changes here from poetry to prose. You see chapter 1 all the way to chapter 35. It is written in poetic form. 
But now chapter 36 to chapter 39 is a prose or it is more of a narrative rather than a poetic language. The first section dealt with the government of God and the method by which God judges. In the last section, we will see the grace of God, that is salvation instead of judgment. And the last section I'm talking about now is chapter 40 to chapter 66. But this historic interlude comes now. Between these two sections is this historic interlude of four brief chapters giving us what was actually happening in the land of Palestine. Chapters 36 to chapter 39, if you like, relay the events of uh, BC 701. That is when Assyria tried to conquer Judah. After Sargon II died in 705 BC, a rebellion took place early in the reign of King Sennacherib. The entire Assyrian Empire was involved Merodach, Baladan of Babylon, in the eastern end of the Fertile Crescent, and Shabak of Egypt in the western end of the Crescent, where the chief troublemakers, Hezekiah, joined the rebellion when the pro-Egyptian party ascended in Judah. Sennacherib marched westward to quiet the rebels after spending time in the east for the same purpose. Phoenicia was taken and the lesser powers fell. Philistia and Egypt were laid waste. Judah was ravaged in preparation for Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC. The city was miraculously delivered when Rabshakeh, when the Rabshakeh, Sennacherib's chief officer, delivered the ultimatum to surrender. And that record is given in Isaiah 36, verse 8 to verse 13. Now, there are questions to ask. Why are these four chapters wedged in between the two major sections of this book? Once again, those two major sections, we call them major because here we only have four chapters. And you have this historic interlude wedged between them. The question is, why? Well, this is a reasonable question which requires investigation and rewards the honest inquirer. There are several significant factors which are worthy of mention. The first one is that sacred and secular history are not the same. Sacred and secular history are not the same, my friend. F.C. Jennings, in his fine works, Studies in Isaiah, says, Divine history is never merely history, never simply a true account of past events. That is a very important question, an important consideration. You see, when you see history only from one perspective, it does not give you an accurate account of what has happened. So you need a composite view from the divine and from the secular point of view, then you understand the history properly. This means that there are great spiritual truths couched in sacred history that are seen only by the eye of faith. The Holy Spirit must teach us the divine purpose in recording spiritual history. 
and I want to note several suggested reasons for this. The first one is that these incidents might seem ordinary to the average historian who records great world movements, but events that concerned God's people were important according to the standards of heaven. Secondly, these chapters note the transfer of power from Assyria to Babylon. Babylon was the first great world power, great world empire, and was the real menace to God's people. Babylon was to even begin that in the period designated by our Lord as the times of the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 21 verse 24. So it's very important to see the transfer of power from Assyria to Babylon. Thirdly, this section is a record of a son of David who was beset by enemies and who went down to the verge of death, but he was delivered and he continued to reign. In this, he foreshadows the great son of David who was also beset by enemies, who was delivered to death, but was raised from the dead and who is coming again to reign. This son of David I'm talking about is King Hezekiah. Hezekiah lived to play the fool. Our Lord was greater than David. And as the crucified and risen son of God, he made, he is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And that is according to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. Now, there are other great spiritual truths which are noted in the chapter outlines. Let us talk again, continuing to see the significance of this historical interlude. The second significant factor in this historical section is that these particular events are recorded three times in Scripture. The first time is in Second Kings chapter 18 to 19, and you have them in Second Chronicles 29 to 30. Then thirdly, here in the section of the historic interlude of Isaiah, the fact that the Holy Spirit saw it fit to record them three times is in itself a matter of great importance. The records are not identical, but they are similar. Some scholars think that Isaiah is the author of all the three, or at least also one in the book of Kings. Well, surely the Holy Spirit has some special truth for us here, which should cause us not to hurry over these events as if they were of no great moment. They are of great value. Three Significant and extraordinary miracles are also recorded in this brief section. So that's a third consideration about four considerations for why this historic interlude is important. But we note that there are three extraordinary miracles recorded in this brief section. The first one is that the death angel slays one hundred and 85,000 Assyrians. And that record is in Isaiah 37, verse 36 to verse 38. Now, the ancient historian Herodotus records that the camp was infested with mice. Evidently, 
God struck down the enemy with a powerful, deadly plague carried by the mice. You see, God had said to Isaiah uh, to tell Hezekiah not to even fight, but be still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And so he did not even need to send his armies. God would sort his enemies on his behalf. Isn't that amazing? Again, we are reminded of the promise, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, the battle that we are engaged in, we don't win in our own strength. We don't win by human means. Only God intervenes. So that historic interlude and that miracle recorded here is very important as it were to ascertain that what God had said he would do and indeed he will do because he has the capacity to do so. Not only does he have the power, but he also loves his people. The second miracle that occurred in this historic interlude again talks of the sun. The sun retreats 10 degrees on the clock of Ahaziah, on the clock of Ahaz, and that record is in Isaiah 38, verse 7 to verse 8. In contrast to Ahaz, Hezekiah accepted the offer of a sign requesting that the sundial of Ahaz be moved 10 degrees backward by a supernatural miracle that reversed the falling shadow on the steps of the sundial. You see, my friend, again, God is showing that even when it goes to the physical, to the natural world, he would cause his power to overrule and overcome. Why? For the sake of his promise to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, for the sake of his covenant with his people. When God promises, he will fulfill it. Then the third miracle, which again is very significant in this section, is that God heals Hezekiah and extends his life 15 years. And the record is in Isaiah 38, verse 1 to verse 5. You see, my friend, only God has the power of life and death. Ultimately, there is never a situation beyond his intervention. If he wills to restore health or even to extend days, God has the power. So what you can see even in these three significant extraordinary miracles is, first of all, you see the angel fighting the battle on behalf of the people, the sun retreating 10 degrees, and then God healing miraculously. You see, the angelic or the heavenly beings participate in the cause of his people. The angels are there. But even the celestial objects also responding to the command of God for the sake of his people. And then on the human level, the greatest and difficult plagues that affect people can also succumb to God's voice. You remember he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and he only spoke with the word of his mouth, and the whole universe came into being. Again, it is a fitting commentary on the 
historical human plan of what God does in the spiritual realm. You see, what he was promising he would do for the children of Israel in their time and even in the time to come was authenticated by what he was doing in history time. Well, the fourth consideration, again, we will need to, why this section is very important. And maybe that fourth consideration is what I will end with. This section, the historic interlude, opens with Assyria and it closes with Babylon. You see, there are two important letters which Hezekiah received. The first letter was from Assyria which Hezekiah took directly to God in prayer. The idea was not that God must read the letter, but rather the idea was that he might consider the matter. Hezekiah used this means to indicate that he was committing the entire matter to the Lord for his judgment. And God answered his prayer and delivered his people. The record is in Isaiah 37, verse 14 to verse 20. He took that letter and spread it before God. But again, again, Hezekiah did what every child of God must do. When you are faced with a situation, he turned to the Lord. He went to the house of the Lord and he turned to the wall and prayed and cried. Well, this matter concerning the letters that he received. The first was from Assyria. The second letter was also from the king of Babylon, which flattered Hezekiah and which he did not take to the Lord in prayer. As a result, it led to the undoing of Judah. Amazing story, amazing commentary of how God works. The section opens with Assyria and closes with Babylon. And Assyria sends a letter, Hezekiah takes it to God. God intervenes. Babylon sends a letter, Hezekiah does not take the letter to God. And Judah is undone, is defeated. Isn't that interesting? Do we have any troubles? In fact, the hymn that we often sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, is so fitting have we any troubles? Have we any worries? We must take them to the Lord in prayer. We learn an important lesson here. Of course, the second letter's account is in Isaiah chapter 39 verse 1 to verse 8. Very interesting and very interesting observation concerning this uh, historic interlude. Now, chapter 36 in this interlude tells about King Hezekiah and the invasion of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Chapter 37 tells about King Hezekiah's prayer and the destruction of the Assyrian host, 185,000 of them. Chapter 38 records King Hezekiah's sickness, his prayer, and healing. Chapter 39 finds King Hezekiah playing the fool, you see, that is when he did not take the letter to God. Now, the chronology of the incident related in this chapter is vague. That is in chapter 39. However, it is clear that it took place after Hezekiah's recovery and that it was associated with 
Merodach Baladan's rebellion against Assyria in BC 703. So my friend, this historic interlude is very important not to be taken lightly for God has used it for an important lesson that he wants us to take. So as we go into this historic interlude, let us be anticipating to let God teach us from what was happening in human events. We also take a lesson to say there is nothing that happens in our own historical life, in our own human lives, whether nations, uh, conflicts between nations, uh, activities and events among communities. Instead of simply looking at these from a human point of view, we must be able to look at them from a divine perspective, having God's evaluation of the events that take place uh, among men. So this historic narrative serves again as a transition from the first half of the book in which Assyria is in the foreground as Israel's major enemy. And then we move to the last half of the book in which Babylon is the prominent threat to Israel's future security. Very important. Again, you don't need to be caught with up in the trap of is Isaiah divided into three or two major sections. This historic interlude is simply a transition bridging the two major points. We anticipate great learning from the hand of God. And may he teach you, may he teach me. As he continues to take us through this living word for Africa. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please send an email to info at twrafrica.org. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me repeat that email address for you. Info at twrafrica.org.